At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. I am proud to say that this week's sponsor is Farlex Reels. For those of you who haven't heard of Farlex, it's time you did. I saw my first one while guiding a client in B.C., His reel was almost sexier than the fish he was landing, and the sound it made was different to the other Click and Paul reels I'd heard in the past. It was only a matter of time before I had one of my own, and now, with confidence, I can tell you that it's the best classic-style reel I've owned. From the steady hum to the reliability while handling large fish, Farlex reels are best described as butter. You can find Farlex at www.farlexreels.com. Bill Bakke is a proud Oregonian who has been involved in fish conservation for over 40 years. Not only is Bill a writer and active voice in the media, he is also the founder of the Native Fish Society, a regional organization focused on the protection and restoration of native fish in the northwestern United States. Last summer, I met with Bill at his home in Oregon. We sat on his beloved patio observing wildlife and prized flower gardens, while Bill kindly allowed me to pick his brain about the Native Fish Society and its struggles. I was born in Portland and raised in Portland, and I'm living in Portland. I haven't left and don't desire to, and I get very nervous (laughs) if I get outside the Columbia River Basin. Fair enough. And we are now sitting in Portland. Yeah, in your are. backyard on this beautiful patio yes. and uh, finally yes. meeting for the first time in, in yes. person. Yeah. I've heard about you, and uh, your reputation precedes you. Oh, thank you. And it's uh, something I was look- I've been looking forward to, meeting you, because I know that you're very engaged in the questions that I'm concerned about, and that's mm-hmm. the future of the fishery in the West Coast. Well, thank you. And likewise, this has been on my bucket list for a while to get to you, so this is great. Before we dive into those, let's learn a little bit more about you. When I was about, I don't know, five, I don't know, kind of hard to estimate the age at the time, but I think it was around five, and I used to go over to my neighbor's yard. I had to crawl through the bushes, get over there, and I had a Doberman pincer by the name of Lady that would accompany me, and we would go over there to their goldfish pond, and we would catch fish. And it was so alluring to me, these beautiful goldfish in this water and I would catch them and I don't remember if I brought them home or not but I remember waking up from a nap once when my Doberman pincer came back with her lips rolled back and very very delicate touch in her mouth 
a goldfish that she had caught and really? wanted to share with her. <laughs> the lesson I, I found out from that, and I didn't really learn the importance until some time later, but that if you catch all the fish out of a habitat, they cement it over the goldfish pond. You lose the fish, you lose the habitat. Ah, uh, okay. Well, that's a really early lesson. And that's an early lesson. And I've always been attracted to moving water, like mm -hmm. a beaver, and, oh, and, and fish. It's just the way I was born. I can relate to that, you know. It was the water mm -hmm. that drew me in before the fish did, actually. Yeah, oh, yeah. Because moving water precedes the fish, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what you see first. I've uh -huh. always been interested in that. Kind of trying to rearrange water. I used to water my parents' uh, garden, and I was always making little river, rivers and dams and diversions. <laughs> Good thing I didn't turn out to be a Corps of Engineer. No, don't. <laughs> imagine, imagine the destruction you would have been doing. Well, let's talk a little bit about your timeline. Did your parents fish? Uh, I actually got my father into fishing, and uh, I remember it was a very interesting experience for me, too. We would... Um, he didn't know anything about fishing, nor did I. So we were kind of learning together, which was kind of pleasant. You know, it wasn't yeah. just a dominating father telling you how to bait your hook. So we found a little place to fish called Three Corner Triangle Lake, it was called. It was in a kind of a developed area on the floodplain of the Columbia River, uh, next to some railroad embankment tracks. And uh, <clears throat> we came in there, and, and um, we were going to fish for whatever, you know, whatever bit. And so we were trying and not having much success. But there's this black man that was there. And uh, my father was really reg racially prejudiced. Okay. I always heard from him that if they moved into the neighborhood, your property values declined. So I, was, I grew up with this thing, perspective of black people. Because you're 71. just want to make it clear. You know, 72. It's not, it's not like you're a 30-year-old. I'm, I'm, more, I'm more mature. I'm 72. Yes. Okay. Ooh, 72. <laughs> <laughs> okay, got it. So but this was a long time. This was a while ago. This was a long time ago. That's yeah. when I was about 10 or so, you know, something like that, just getting out. And so I was, I, that was kind of the family and, and perspective I came out of. And this, this uh, guy, he was just packing his gear up and, and leaving. He had caught his fish. And he gave me some bait, and he showed me how to put it on and what to do with it. You throw it out and what to do with it. And I caught this huge crappie. Right. And I was so excited. I pulled it up on the bank. I was flopping around, and I jumped on it to keep it from getting back into the creek. And ever since then, as far as I was concerned, black people were okay. Okay. <laughs> and unfortunately, he had gone, and so he didn't get a chance to see my excitement, or I couldn't even thank him for it. Oh, imagine if you need a day where you're at. That's That was another learning experience that came to me through fishing, through the habitat, and, and you also understand other people and can appreciate what they offer you along the way. Uh, then I, I got involved with, I, I did a lot of uh, fishing, and I got curious at one point. As, um, I don't know when that was, I guess I was in college at the time. Um, and I used to spend a lot of time at the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. Mm -hmm. At that time it was the Oregon Game Commission. And there was Chuck Campbell and Longline Locke, his assistant. Long line lock. Yeah, and uh, they, uh, as far as I was concerned, they knew everything. What were you doing there? And I was uh, asking questions. And the question I, the one of the key questions I asked him, I said, "I'm fishing this one river that's got big steelhead in it. I'm fishing another river that's bigger river, but it's got smaller steelhead. Why is that?" And Chuck Campbell says, "Go over there." He says, that's the library, start reading. And I did. I got into the scientific literature, the American Fisheries Society, and he tried to recruit me as a member. Of course, I didn't have any money to become a member. And I started reading, and I couldn't believe in reading that scientific material and asking, you know, with regard to that question and other questions that came from my reading, that, that anglers didn't read this stuff because it was really insightful about the animal. And you grew in your appreciation for the animal and its an environment. And it wasn't just about harvesting or catching fish, but it's how they lived. And if you know how they lived, you can become a better fisherman, too. Yeah, and if you want to really love it, you want to love everything about everything it. Everything about it. And, but I asked the right... I, later, it, it occurred to me that I had to ask the right question for my life. And that question was about life history of the animal. 
why certain streams have different kinds of fish of the same species, different size, different run timing, uh, those kinds of things. And why the Wind River, which is a steep gradient small stream, a lot of steelhead fishermen don't like it because it's so small, but it's a river nonetheless. And uh, hard to access in a steep canyon, that sort of thing. It's up in the gorge, Columbia River Gorge in Washington State. And it had uh, fish that were in excess of 20, 25 pounds. That's huge for such a small stream. That's right. The question I, I asked was the right question. It's about the life history diversity of these animals. Why they're different and why, how rivers are different, how the fish that occupy those rivers are adapted locally to those rivers, how they're different from fish in other rivers. Mm -hmm. In other words, these animals are locally adapted, and they've been doing this for millions of years. And they are so finely tuned to their environment that they're irreplaceable. Right. And if you don't have your wild run, you can't maintain your fishery. How old were you at that time, do you think? Mm, I was in my early 20s. Did you go to college? Yes. What did you take? Well, I, I primarily focused on literature. But I was, I was, I've always been kind of a person who followed my own nose, mm -hmm. you know, my own curiosity. So I wasn't really good at accumulating credits for graduation. I was just taking classes and enjoying certain professors more than other professors. And I was, he became kind of critical of the university experience. And I said, well, the students are the ones that are integrating the knowledge here, not the university. The university should do a better job of providing the integrated knowledge of human knowledge for the students and provide those opportunities. So I created an alternative university at the university, and they, they even paid me to do it. In your 20s? Yeah. Wow. So, so what I, that comes, what, that's the other aspect of my life is that I'm a reformer. So I created these, I had a cadre of professors that joined my Chiron Studies project. And we took, for instance, a theme. And we would apply, bring in um, engineering, literature, philosophy, history, and have the professors come to the students and talk about that theme from their perspective, from their discipline. Fascinating. It was something that uh, the school backed, and they paid me to uh, help run it. Did they keep it? It's still going, as far as I know. They, I did get a few years ago a call from people that were still involved in the program, and and asked me to come in and kind of give them a background of what went on. When we sat down earlier, we were talking about being a biologist. Yeah. And I don't know, it might be too early in this discussion to go down this road, but why did you <clears throat> choose to not become a biologist at school if you were already so involved in your education? Um, well, it, I would have to go to Oregon State, which is down the valley, and go to Corvallis and go to school, and that was inconvenient, you know. I kind of, you know... Had some longings, wishing I was doing that. I'd like, and uh, but I did go down with Jim Lickatouch, who's uh, working for Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, and he would go down there, and they would go have uh, talks at Oak Creek Lab, and so I got a chance to meet some of the thinkers oh, in okay. biology that were thinking about the future and, and problems with the present, and it was very uh, illuminating for me. And so I got exposed to the knowledge and to the people that were trying to cause change to happen without having to go to the university. And the way my impression is now is that the university teaches people how to make a product for the market economy. It's, yeah. not, it's not about the animal, appreciation, respect for the animal, and trying to make sure that the animal persists. It's a replacement of the wild animal with the artificially produced one for the market. And that would have ruined me. And in fact, uh, my friend Bill McMillan, who I met on the Washougal fishing one day, and have had a lifelong relationship since then, he actually tried to go to the University of Washington and he, uh, he quit because he didn't agree with the way they were looking at fisheries. Oh, oh I didn't know that. Yeah, he quit. Because a lot of people think you are a biologist because of all the conservation work that you've done, which, yeah. of course, we're going to dive into soon. Yeah. What did you take on as a, as a career? Oh, I, uh, I worked at a slaughterhouse. Okay. And uh, that was uh, challenging, mm -hmm. to say the least, but interesting. 
a whole different set of people. I mm -hmm. worked as a carpenter with my father. And I also uh, worked with uh, Sandwich Hot Steel Letter Magazine. I was writing their conservation section with Frank Amato. And I was telling you last night I was reading old cutouts. Uh -huh. Yeah, 1971, your, your articles about fishing dry flies yeah. and fishing, you know, yeah. surface presentations. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Has your stance from those early 70s columns stayed the same to where you're at today? I've probably become even more hard line. Because I, I don't like to make to make a conclusion unless I got I, I'm, unless I have the facts. I'm not a belief oriented person. You know, I have emotions about what I do, yeah. and I dearly love the things that I do. But it, but when you're talking about something like uh, uh, a fish run and how you protect it, it's got to be based upon facts. What I found out is with uh, Kindred Soul and and um, Bill McMillan. And at the time, John McMillan was about this high. Oh, I remember him sleeping out here on the lawn with his dog. Really? Know? Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so impressed with what he's become. Me you too. Know, he's a good writer, a good speaker. And he's so energetic. And he, yeah. he's got a hard line in terms of the way he values fish. He's a good man. Yeah. I'm a big fan yeah. of him. So you've been in this house for a long time if he was out here as oh, a yeah. kid. Oh, yeah. It's 36 years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So in in the meantime too, I was also with uh, Marita. She was a wildlife biologist, so I spent a lot of time with her out in the field, helping her do surveys. Before you were married, or uh, before and, and after. after? Yeah, uh, I I don't have a test for women, you know, that they have to pass a test. I'm scared. Okay, but it, but it, <laughs> but, it, but, it, but it came it came about um, logically. I said, well, that makes sense. I She's good, based upon this. So one one of the things that ended up being a test where she became good was she spent the winter with me in my little house that I heated once in a while with wood. And when she came in, she changed all the uh, fuses uh, so that I had electricity, too, because I wasn't paying attention. But my daughter, at the time, from the previous marriage, we would have... Uh, breakfast outside and then the snow would be snowing and she said she she liked it you know but it was one of those things where in order to keep the milk from freezing i had to put it in the refrigerator mm. that sort of life it's not undifferent from uh, smithers probably a little harsh i'm still using a cooler in smithers <laughs> i don't have any electricity <laughs> and so you know those those kinds of experiences uh that we lived at a place uh called uh down time lapse lane of the log house on, on Kellogg Lake. So oh, cool. It was a creek and a pond, and it was a beautiful place, you know. So I got a chance to live in those kinds of environments, but unfortunately, being living in Portland has been uh, too much of an urban life for me. But I live in my yard. I can see why. There's hummingbirds around us, and there's flowers everywhere. And I don't know if anyone can hear all the bird life, but it's alive back here, and it's so green. And she, uh, she and I worked on this yard bringing in native plants for cover and for food. I have to tell you this about my wife. I want the second test. I didn't have okay. three. I didn't have three tests. Two, just two. I just concluded it at this on the second one. We were at Man Lake fishing, and the Lahan cutthroats along the margin of the river and through the the, the uh, weed beds. She was waiting uh, because she didn't have any boots, waiting barefoot out and. Man Lake in the mud, and she kind of she likes that the mud and the toes. And we're fly fishing for uh, cutthroats as they travel by. And she got to be pretty good and caught a few fish, but then I noticed that she just packed up and went uh, up to the tent and sat there. And she she unlike me she actually has toes that articulate and she could spread her toes like this. Right. I said, what are you doing? She had her toes sitting out there spread it and spread out in the sun. I said, what are you doing? She says, I'm, I'm killing the leeches. What? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I thought you were going to say, you know, she caught enough fish and, and she came to rest and that was passing the test. But she was killing leeches yeah, in her was, toes? Yeah, she was sunning the leeches in her toes and killing the leeches. So then she could get up and go back out in the lake and just go nonchalantly no yeah. big deal never said a word about it i had <laughs> oh to ask gosh. her about it <laughs> so you married her she's irish i had to <laughs> <laughs> now it all, now i totally understand your character i got you i got you this is great so you get married yeah. where do you go from here when it comes to work at this point 
Well, I, I really lived off my wife's wages. She she was working for Intertribal Fish Commission, and I worked there for a, for a while too. Uh, but she worked there for well, I know, fifteen years, something like that. And she set up their enforcement program. Oh. She came in as a uh, as a INE person, information information person. She's a good writer. She's good. She's a good biologist. She has biological training. But she also set up their enforcement program for the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission, too. And I was limping along. I started the Oregon Trout in '83. And that went along fine until the organization was stolen from me by people that we had hired. And so I was booted out, and I started in 95, I started the Navy Fish Society. Did you say you started it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I knew you were the head guy there, but I didn't know just how deeply rooted that was. Yeah, I started it up. I went down to... I, I. Went down to Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife Research and talked to the guys down there. I says, "Well, look, you know, they they all said you got to do something more. You got to you got to start another organization after getting uh, booted out of Oregon Trout, which finally it died and it's no longer exists." I figured it did, yeah. Yeah, and it was just after we had filed uh, on, under the ESA uh, for protection of Snake River Chinook, and they got listed, but the uh, president of the board, who this new executive director brought in, because he had money, didn't agree. He was conservative and didn't agree with the ESA. Right. So I was, uh, I was totally uh, had no longer any support in the organization. So I was out. So anyway, <clears throat> started up Native Fish Society, which essentially carried on the agenda, primarily looking at the authority of the agencies over harvest and hatcheries. And we'll, you know, definitely support people that are working on habitat. But there's a lot of people out there worried about habitat. And I'm assuming that they're doing good work. Because without habitat, you don't have fish. But you can have habitat and wrong fish. And that's where it comes down to the authority of the management agencies and how they are treating. uh, Are they getting enough spawners back to the habitat? And are those spawners wild or hatchery origin? Because the hatchery origin fish waste the habitat. They are not productive. They're not productive like the wild fish. Plus, they contribute to uh, ecologically to the decline of the wild run because of competition for food and space. Are you talking salmon, steelhead, or both right now? Salmon, steelhead, and trout. You're talking everything. Okay. Let's dive into some of this. Mm -hmm. So, how did you, in the 90s, without there being internet and all this, these people who were easy to reach, how did you? First of all, muster up the confidence to do it, and B, how did you go about making the first few steps? Well, it's uh, I had people helping me, and one of the first things you do is you get. Uh, I was insisted upon <clears throat> by my friend Pat Fur, who helped me set up Oregon Trout as well as the Native Fish Society. He's since passed away. He's an attorney, and so he wrote the bylaws, made sure that we had an accountant. So okay. that the money is totally uh, accountable. And it's a non-for-profit? Yeah. So, and once you get that, then it's all a, f- a matter of fundraising. You know, one of the one of the things that Likitowich and I have talked about is that a lot of times um, groups see their mission, they have ownership over their mission, they don't share, they don't um, work together as well as they probably could. I think we're getting getting uh, to the stage now where we're better at doing that. He, his idea of two foundations was to take a look at who's doing what and who's being successful at doing what you know that's in in compliance with your mission, and and rather than just funding projects, funding organizations that are actually accomplishing something that's important to your foundation on the ground. What were your first few projects? I mean, besides supporting other organizations who were doing great work, did you have a, a project that you started off with? Well, a number of them. You know, I, I got some EPA grants to do some um, scientific papers that I had farmed out to certain scientists to, to, to write for us. I hired some other scientists to uh, do an evaluation of uh, the condition of certain runs on the Oregon coast, that sort of thing. I just came off listing the fishes in danger or threatened on this on the snake, the Chinook, and that took a lot of following. You know, I have to make sure that what it was was being 
uh, the in ESA was actually being applied in favor of the fish. Okay. And that's not always the case, as I found out. And I also did a lot of review. I did I tracked the, uh, the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife a lot. I went to the commission meetings and, and talking with staff and that sort of thing. And then in 1980, the Northwest Power Act was passed, and the Northwest Power Planning Council was created for the Columbia River Basin. And that includes uh, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Montana. Oh. And the governors uh, elect who represents them, two people from each state, on the council. And the council has an independent scientific review capacity of the projects that they're proposing to um, recover salmon and they've in the, on the, in the Columbia River Basin. So it's a real strong program and uh, scientifically, but in terms of uh, accomplishments, I, th I think it's pretty weak right okay. now because they've primarily invested in hatcheries and not in actually de developing a recovery program for salmon. But the Native Fish Society's <laughs> mission is, what's the mission statement? Protect uh, indigenous native fish. I'm, my primary focus is on salmonids. There's a conflict with hatchery programs then. Yeah. Can you just explain the timeline of hatcheries a little bit to me? Because I don't really, I still don't understand when hatcheries were put into place, why, all that kind of stuff. Well, it goes back to 1875. Okay. Okay. And um, back then, uh, Spencer Baird was a U.S. Fish Commissioner. His organization was just recently created by Congress. And uh, he had bad experiences with uh, Atlantic salmon. They were trying to recover Atlantic salmon on the East Coast, and it wasn't working. And mainly, um, he, he came to the conclusion, from what he said anyway, that the states weren't willing to do what was necessary to protect the Atlantic salmon, protect the habitat, and, um, and control the fisheries. So he comes out of the West Coast, and uh, he told the Oregonian, our local newspaper, back in 1875 that the salmon runs were declining already in the Columbia because of harvest, and that he says that you don't need to protect, to regulate the harvest, and you don't need to protect the habitat. We can provide all the salmon with hatchery production. And it was an unproven assessment, uh, assertion on his part, uh, he had no proof, but he knew that the states wouldn't protect the habitat and they wouldn't regulate the harvest. So the only option he had was to provide funding for hatchery programs that would at least keep some salmon going. And, and all the full, whole focus was on commercial harvest. Okay. In uh, 1877, the first hatchery was built on the uh, tributaries of the Clackamas. Ran first hatchery? On the whole Columbia River Basin. Oh, okay. And the whole idea there was that the canners, they initially st started it, but the U.S. Fish Commission, through Livingston Stone, began to run the hatchery. But he, he started the, the, um, the Baird Hatchery down on the McLeod, and that's where the salmon were exported to the Susquehanna and the Mississippi because the uh, Transcontinental Railroad was finished in 1869, I believe it was, and they got these hatchery cars, and they could transfer eggs. They learned how to keep eggs alive all the way across the country. With and they the started, moss? Did they yeah, do all that? like moss, yeah. yeah. And so they were transplanting Pacific salmon to the East Coast for release, and they were bringing uh, East Coast fish here. And, for instance, shad were released into Columbia in 1871. Where did they come from? They come from the Susquehanna. In oh. fact, the biologists from the Susquehanna about 10, 15 years ago were out here trying to collect shad eggs to repopulate the Susquehanna. Oh, it's so backwards. I had no idea. Okay. <laughs> All right. But this is what went on. So the hatchery became how you manage rivers uh, and fish like, uh, like you do agriculture, growing corn and wheat. And that was the whole idea that we can improve upon nature and that wild fish, the spawning, is wasteful. It's wasteful. But we can do a better job than nature. I Okay. All right. I'm going to just bite my tongue and let you continue. That's the whole um, way hatcheries were thought of. And that thought has never, has still persisted. People still think that. Enter Native Fish Society. So in, uh, from 1875 to today, 
is a long stretch. So I'm going to fill in a few spots along the way. The the real really the only time that salmon that people reached out to protect salmon wasn't through the agencies, but it was through public initiative petitions. And they got the coast close to commercial fishing in the bays because they were worried about the declining salmon runs because they're up from commercial fishing. Um, 1927, they closed down fish wheels and pound traps on the Columbia River. They didn't close down the gillnet fishery, but uh, their, the whole goal was that they wanted more escapement of salmon into the Columbia. And that was before the, you know, before the dams. Salmon weren't, were declining before the dams. And, the, and that's why the hatchery was built in 1877. It was to increase the supply of salmon from the canneries. So they were over-harvesting, and the states essentially were powerless to change it. They had all the canners had all the political momentum on their side. So they were the primary economic engine of this part of Oregon, that logging. And um, they called the shots. And the fish and wildlife people were just there to make sure that they got their way. But it just seems so short-sighted. But at the time, uh, they believed, you know, in 1902, uh, some of the Everman and uh, David Starr Jordan down uh, down Stanford were the uh, the people who really knew salmon, and they were the expert recognized experts, and they maintain that there's no evidence that salmon returned to their, to a particular river to spawn, that it there was all random, and uh, Livingston Stone had a theory about this, who ran the hatchery on the McLeod and up on the Clackamas. He felt that the river, if it entered the Columbia energetically, like the Deschutes or something like that, it came in through white water into the Columbia, that it would attract salmon. But a river like the Willamette uh, wouldn't because it had a smooth entry, that sort of thing. All this has all thoughts, been disproven, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, course, <laughs> I was going to say, course. this sounds, I mean, yeah, we the, also used to think the, the world was flat. Yeah, well, that's, that's the thinking, you know, that's a comparable thinking. But, but in the late 1800s and early 1900s, uh, that was the philosophy, that we could improve upon nature because nature was wasteful, we could farm it like a crop, and we could um, improve our commercial enterprise, and we could uh, raise these fish artificially, and we didn't have to take care of the habitat or regulate the fisheries. That's, that's the game plan. That's, that's how fishery management started. And that's its, uh, and that's its initiation, and it's still largely focused in that direction. And okay, take me to my <clears throat> next step on this, because what I want to say is it feels like we're still living in the backwoods here. Like, how have we not figured this out? But I don't know the science to be able to have an argument to that point, So, and you do. Now we move up the line, up to your timeline now, and go up to the 1920s and 30s and 40s, and a guy... From Stanford, he was a student of David Starr Jordan, came here and worked, and he became the first uh, research biologist for the Oregon Game Commission, and the uh, Oregon Fish Commission, I guess. And he did tagging studies. Mm, okay. And so he tagged salmon, and he discovered that these fish are actually returning to the waters where they were tagged, to the tributaries. That they are, they aren't randomly associated with the freshwater, they're actually adapted to these watersheds. Had they done otolith studies at this point no, yet? No, wait, that's, that's a long time ago. So they just did tagging studies. Just tagging, okay. But he was able to prove that they were returning to the rivers. Well, already Bobbitt, I think it was his name, Babbitt, I think it was Babbitt, up in British Columbia in the 1890s, had already made that conclusion. Uh, he said, in order to protect the commercial fishery, we have to get a spawning escapement into these rivers in order to provide the fish for uh, the commercial fishery. Mm. And uh, Willis uh, Rich came to the same conclusion here in the, in the 30s. And uh, he, he developed what he called a home stream theory, that salmon come back to their home river. And it's that river you need to protect. You know, salmon coming back to the river, they need to be there abundant enough to produce the next generation, and the fisheries can be maintained. Why do they come back to the same river? Uh, because they're, they, uh, they, they spawn in, in a particular river, and they become adapted to the conditions in that river. And the, 
the uh, juveniles are adapted, uh, imprinted upon that river, upon the water, the odor of the water, and even to the location of where they were born in terms of spawning gravel area of the river. So they're very finely tuned through selection, genetic selection, over millions of years to a particular habitat. How that all began is a mystery to me, but I'm glad it happened. But there are really these wide-ranging animals like uh, Clearwater steelhead on the snake, ending up over in Japan when they're in their uh, seaward migration and, and maturing. Uh, well, they mature out in the ocean as far away as Japan. Yeah. And they come back to the clear waters, 30-pound fish. Anyway, Willis Rich came to this conclusion that's a home stream theory. So that, that laid the groundwork that we needed to uh, have uh, what is called river-specific management now for Atlantic mm. salmon and in Europe and in eastern Canada, river-specific management, where you manage each river stock for that river, and you make sure that you protect the habitat and have, and have a wild salmon, enough wild salmon to pop, propagate in that habitat. In Oregon, we came to the conclusion that that was the way to go. When people were buying into it, then the dam builders came in. Uh, okay, so if this was in the 30s, when did the dam builders come in? 18, uh, 33 is when Rock Island was built. So there really wasn't much time in between yeah, this at all? No. Okay. And Bonneville is built in 38. Cooley is 41. So the dam builders and the, then, then the Willamette projects went in in the 40s. So uh, the dam builders came in and hatcheries resurfaced as their solution because they could be used to mitigate for the losses of the wild sand. So you could build dams, block habitat, cause extinction in a particular river, and um, if they thought about it or if it was demanded, they would pay restitution through mitigation with hatcheries. That's uh, kind of the uh, how this all came about. Okay. And what happens in the 50s, 60s, 70s? Um, the, the agencies, you know, really, you know, this whole idea of stock transfer, translocation of fish among watersheds. You know, you run short of eggs at this hatchery, bring them in from another hatchery, and the fish is a fish, you know. And that whole that whole idea that they're inter it's they're interchangeable parts that they're not locally adapted uh, still has a strong influence on fish management. And uh, there is no stock transfer policy in the state of Oregon. You can move fish as long as they're native to Oregon, right? You can move them anywhere you want to. You can move Rogue River fish to the Columbia, even, and they have. Even after they've done all the studies and research to find out that it's river-specific? There's this big gap between science and management. Okay. And there's no connective tissue, except for the individuals that are doing the science. But the scientists are also worried. They're employed by the agencies, see. So the policymakers don't have to listen to their scientists. But have you seen a progression in the last 40 years? Uh, in the science, the science, as far as I'm concerned, the scientists are leading the debate, uh, but the the policy people don't listen to the scientists. And that's been consistent for yes. you throughout your yeah. life. Okay. Yeah, and it's to the point now where we say, what can, I mean, administratively, they don't want to recover wild salmon. So what do you do? The only option you have is lawsuits. Okay, I was going to ask you if, if legal ended up getting involved. Yeah. Okay. The Navy Fish Society, when they developed the uh, coastal uh, multi-species management plan for the whole, the whole Oregon coast, we uh, hired uh, independent scientists, uh, several of them, to review that plan and make comments on it. And um, they ignored it totally. In this fact, they, they told the Native Fish Society that we weren't, a, we weren't a player. Well, who is a player then? The people who agree with the agency. Well, <laughs> that sounds awfully biased. That's the way it is, though. It just sounds so crooked. <clears throat> it is crooked. So, uh, did you used to have more clout? Did you find you're gaining merit or losing it over the I'm last losing, few? I'm losing ground, mainly, mainly uh, because... Um, the uh, personnel changes, you know, uh, during the 80s, the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife was science-oriented. They had a strong research program, probably the best on the coast. And probably the only other rival would be Nanaimo, you know, but they had the best on the coast. And like Likitowich and was assistant chief of fisheries and 
Barry Wagner is the chief of fisheries. Both came out of research. Both of them were science-oriented. And so uh, they don't always make a good decision in terms of policy, but it was they, they, they looked at the science and tried to inform their decisions with the science as well as all the political pressure on them to come up with a harvestable product. So they were at least fair. Yeah. What do you think the reason is for losing ground right now? Do you think it's just too focused on economy? Yeah, the, uh, the what the uh, dams did for us uh, and against the salmon is it brought in federal money as mitigation. Now, these are all public dollars, just you know, like license dollars are public dollars. Utility uh, mitigation is public dollars. And that all goes towards the hatchery program for the most part. There's a lot of habitat investment too, but most of it's in form of hatcheries. And um, the uh, business plan for the agency is to um, increase that supply of federal dollars, say it's with a match of 25%. And politicians are happy with the fact that hatcheries can replace wild salmon because then they don't have to take the hard line of protecting habitat from ranchers and loggers and miners. Now, they, a lot of the, re the university research people are kind of uh, quiet about the problem because uh, they look to the agencies and the federal government for grants. Yep. So the uh, agencies have created this um, business plan that is extremely successful. And they got one, they got a problem is that the fish are listed. We have 190 populations of salmon and steelhead in the Columbia River that are at risk of extinction. We have an e a lot of those fish are listed under the Endangered Species Act. The primary response has been to uh, fund hatcheries to supplement them and uh, save them with hatchery fish. And the tribes are involved with this too. Unlike the BC tribes, it seems like they're much more environmentally driven. Yeah, and then, then they don't have as many pantry programs, at least up, up Yeah, up no, we don't mainland. have as many. Right. So they have, they're dependent upon the wild fish. And that's the way Europe and the way Eastern Canada is, too. They don't have the same hatchery infrastructure that we have. More dependent upon wild fish, so they're much more concerned about the wild fish than right. we are. So we're, repla we're busy replacing the fish, and that's good for the agencies because that creates a, a good flow of federal money. Millions and millions of dollars. We've spent uh, since 1978 uh, $15 billion on salmon recovery in the Columbia River, and the runs are continuing to decline. And there's no measurable benefit from being listed as a ESA animal for recovery because there's no effective uh, recovery program for wild salmon actually um, being applied. We're, right now, we're mitigating our mitigation. In other words, we're releasing all these hatchery fish. They're swamping out the wild fish in terms of ecological and genetic impacts and spawning tributaries. So we're mitigating that by trying to build barriers to hatchery fish and pass the wild fish. So in order to keep our, wild, our hatchery program going, we have to mitigate that mitigation. So what can we do? And what can we do to show support to the Native Fish Society so that you do have a foot to stand on again? What we've done, uh, it's, it's something I did at Oregon Trout and now at the Native Fish Society, is uh, having uh, river stewards, river keepers or river stewards. And the whole idea there is that we have people that are advocates for the fish in their neighborhoods on particular rivers scattered all around the state. Huh. And not just for salmon and steelhead, but that's primary occupation preoccupation, but for all native fish. So these people are kind of the, um, they can question their local biologist, well, what is your spawning schema goal for coho? And are we meeting it? Are their fisheries regulated so that we achieve that spawning schema goal? Those kinds of questions. And we're trying, we're training these people so that they can ask those kinds of questions and feel confident that, in asking them that they won't be put down. Oh, okay. You see, and they're early warning to us because, uh, well, we got a big problem down on the elk. We got, you know, got all this huge stray rate of chinook on the elk. We got local people on the elk that we're helping out make the case 
with the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife to clean up the act on the elk. What do you mean by a stray rate? Hatchery fish that are uh, straying into adjacent rivers uh, that uh, aren't tributary to the elk but are up the coast or down the coast from the elk. They're straying into the hatchery fish aren't going home. Because they have no natural instincts? <clears throat> because uh, they're hatchery? Yeah, that's they're not well imprinted apparently. And they're not going back home, they're going into other watersheds to spawn and causing problems there, genetic and ecological problems for the wild salmon in those other watersheds. Plus they're also straying within the elk, they're not all going to the hatchery, they're all spawning in the upper watershed, which is, a lot of it's in wilderness right now, good, good condition habitat, but it's being overrun with hatchery strays, which cause genetic and ecological problems. They contribute to the decline of the wild fish. Can you explain your top points as to why the, you believe, or you feel, or have found in your studies that hatchery fish uh, are not the solution to this problem? Well, the only thing that hatchery fish and wild fish have in common is photo period and water. You said photo period? Photo period With and water. With the light? But, yeah. <clears throat> but now that they have lights in these hatcheries, that may not be something they have in common anymore. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You see? Okay. So, so they have one thing in common, water. And that's as far as it goes. Hatcheries select for an animal that's adapted to that environment, to that controlled environment. And not adapted, they're maladapted, let's say, to the wild environment. And they don't survive well within that environment. But they take up room and space, attract predators. Uh, recently, uh, they quit stocking coho salmon on the LC River. And they had a huge predation problem in the estuary for bird, bird and seal and so on, predation when they had the hatchery program, but once they quit releasing the hatchery fish, the predation problem went away. I don't understand how that works exactly. They attract predators. Because? They all go out at the same time. Oh! Wild fish go out over, the, you know, it's not it's not as contracted as, as the uh, as the hatchery fish. Oh, releases. that's such a good point. I never actually <clears throat> thought about that. And right now, on the Columbia River, for instance, we have all kinds of exotic fish like walleye and smallmouth bass and perch and channel catfish that have been brought in to expand the fishing opportunity, license sales it's called, right? And these fish are competing for food with the uh, salmon and they're eating the juveniles as well. And they're incredibly predacious on, on the, on the uh, juveniles and so uh, we, we have uh, a bounty on, on, on Columbia River, what they call a pike minnow. It used to be called squawfish. Yeah, yeah, we have those. Yeah. But pike minnow uh, is a native fish. Right. And salmon have um, lived with that native fish. They've co-evolved with that native fish. The problem is with the dams, we've created a, a really good environment for these fish to be uh, more of them than there usually would be under in the moving water. Some people have made as much as, I don't know, $10,000, $20,000 catching pike minnow. And, and off beat, bounties? And, yeah, off a of bounty. And the Bonneville Power Administration is paying these people to uh, fish for um, pike minnow and catch, catch you know, a certain size. I was thinking about changing jobs. I'd make more money. <laughs> you know, oh, I'd get out, on the, get out on the river some. Coming up, Bill and I talk about license sales, bounties, and the conflicts of advocacy. Again, thank you to Farlex Reels for making this episode possible. Today, Farlex makes both a click and pull direct drive reel and a multiplier, each of which are perfect for fighting steelhead and salmon. Function and style go hand in hand with these reels, and they are truly works of art. Simple, yet elegant, timeless, yet historic. If nothing else, open your eyes to the mastery of designer Tim Gelinas and check out his reels at www.farlexreels.com. It's really interesting to me. As the agency is so interested primarily in license sales and, and mitigation monies that come in from outside for their business plan to keep growing their budget that uh, right now we're killing sea, sea lions and seals and cormorants and terns, all of which are not, uh, the sea, sea lions uh, 
and the birds are all protected through uh, federal federal acts. Because this was a huge part of the argument to the pro hatchery guys yeah. or the sea lions. Yeah. Okay, I'm curious to hear where you. Well, they have this. to make a living too, right? Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of hatchery fish coming through. The sea lions are going to take advantage of them, and we've quit killing them. I've got old records showing now they paid ten dollars a seal, a bounty, and that the fishermen were out killing them. Some of them made you know quite a bit of money killing do you, seals. Do you think we need to be harvesting some of them? No, no. But at the same time, it's not a seal problem; it's a dam problem. So they're blaming the cormorants and the sea lions and all these things, well, but it's, it's not that. Well, the the dams concentrate the fish because they're trying to find their way around the dam. Of course. That's where there's that's where the best pickings are. You'll see seals around. The salmon runs were so low this year that the seals were actually uh, feeding on bluegill and perch instead of salmon. So it's poverty time. No doubt. That's a major step down. <laughs> but but here here you got a bounty on on you're killing um, native animals that are considered predators on sea on uh, salmon. And yet you don't have a bounty on bass and channel catfish that you brought in there because you're selling licenses to fish for them. So you can't have a bounty on them, but you can you can kill native wildlife that is uh, feeding on your hatchery salmon, 200 million coming out of the hatchery program in the Columbia River all at once. And of course it's going to attract predators that affect the wild fish because they're mixed together. You, you kill those animals because you're not selling licenses. They're not a sport animal. So how do you fight something like that when it comes to fighting the government about license sales? It's, it's, the, it's our culture. It's oh, my our, God. I just had this awful revelation. So are people like me who are out there advocating education and get outside, get outside, go fishing, go fishing, where uh, do you draw the line in conservation and education <clears throat> and when they merge to do well and when they merge to do awful? Well, I would assume that when you're uh, advocating fishing and getting outside and learning about nature, that you're, you're increasing your appreciation for the experience. Yes, of course. For the animal and for the place. Mm. That's good. Because more we need more people that have a respect for nature. And I'm glad to see that more people are becoming that way. But a lot of them, when they start, they start off with, I mean, I started off bottom bouncing not i didn't start off like that but one of my first fisheries when i was younger as a teenager was bottom bouncing on the fraser you start off with something that is pretty simple so around here maybe the way they start off is with things like fishing perch and oh it is catfish. so oh, it is how do you that's where i got my start fishing carp exactly so how do we get those people and appeal to those people and get them into the sport without falling into the trap of the license sales which then ends up ruining the you know, our yeah. steelhead runs. Do you see what I mean? You see how it's a big mess. Well, what we need, what we need, is from those people to understand the place of those warm water fish that they're not, they're not native, that they're actually hurting wildlife, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't fish for them. Go ahead and enjoy yourself, but don't, don't stop there. Start thinking about how that fish fits into the ecosystem as a whole. Has the Native Fish Society tried to access a lot of those people? who are advocates for those fisheries because they maybe don't know better? Have you guys found a way to get into them to no, be able... No, no. Is that something that's an option? Yeah, well, it's an option, and it's, an, and it's necessary. Okay. Yeah, we need advocates that aren't necessarily... Most of our members have a angling connection. Conservation-oriented, yeah. like kind of angling connection. But that, that connection does need to be made for people who see this place as special. Yeah. Worldwide, where salmon found, not very often. You know, it's a northern hemisphere. It's pretty special. Right? You got Russia, and you got North America, you got northern Europe, and uh, they're in uh, trouble everywhere. So that's a key question: is how do you get the public who isn't a participant in fishing, so they don't know it from that angle, they aren't experiencing the uh, joys and challenges of angling. But they have a high regard for salmon. It's still iconic. It's important to them to know that if you have salmon, so you got to relate it to them in some other way. You have salmon, you also have healthy watersheds. If you have salmon, you have, you're taking action to protect your water from pollution mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So that adds the dimension to, uh, from the public's perspective, that if we have salmon, we have healthy rivers.
and we also have reliable drinking water sources. So that's the way in there, I think, with a lot of people that don't experience fishing. But I love the choir. The people who fish and respect the, uh, the uh, sport and its history and its application and the animals that they're after can be strong spokespeople for the, for the resource. And we need it. The thing people need to understand about hatcheries is that they don't work. If your goal is to increase the supply or abundance of wild salmon, they don't work because they're maladapted for survival in the environment. And when they come back as adults or as juveniles migrating out, they're attracting predators that you know, consume wild salmon. They're competing for food and space with the wild salmon as juveniles. And when they come back, they interbreed, and it causes the genetic problems and the ecological problems for the salmon, such that their fitness, their ability to survive in their natural environment that they've been adapted to for millions of years to be less than what it could be because they have hatchery fish that are mating with them. We're eroding what doesn't need to be eroded. What's the long-term solution? If all wild fish are wiped out, could hatchery fish sustain themselves? Uh, not themselves, but over time, you know, and there are cases, these are very malleable animals. That's why hatcheries work, because they're, they're constantly adapting to their environment. And they're finding, like, for instance, on steelhead, you take a wild steelhead, and you take the eggs from that wild steelhead, and raise them in a hatchery, and release them. And they're less fit than the wild parent in just one generation. They come back and their reproductive success is 20% less than the wild fish. They're adapting to the hatchery environment so that it causes them to be less fit to survive in nature. And see, we used to think that genetic change was something that happened over long term. But these animals are changing not only genetically but phenotypically so that their traits are different. They're expecting different kinds of environment that they were reared in, and they don't have it in the river. So they aren't competent. Anymore. They're no longer competent, is the best way of saying it. In one generation. In one generation. That's scary. It is scary. and But those fish, likewise, theoretically, can readapt to their natural environment if you don't constantly frustrate that readaption process by adding more hatchery fish on top of them or killing too damn many of them before they get back to spawn. So, you know, they can. But, for instance, the, the Baird hatchery I was mentioned earlier, they're spreading salmon all over, the, uh, all over North America. Well, they also sent them to New Zealand. You have Chinook salmon in New Zealand I know it. that are naturally adapted from the Cloud River in California. And they uh, adapted to those watersheds and they spread out into different watersheds. Spring Chinook became Fall Chinook life history. Yeah. And they started uh, changing, adapting to the various rivers and lakes that they're going back to. And that's because they live in a fluctuating environment that changes on a daily schedule, a weekly, a monthly, a yearly schedule. Things happen randomly, like a heat wave that wipes them out, but not all of them. And those that survive are able to cope the next time that they're faced with that kind of condition. Mm -hmm. These animals survive volcanism, and uh, you know, incredible amount of the, the, the uh, Pleistocene Ice Age. They survived that. We had the Sacramento and the Columbia, and the Yukon as primary uh, uh, refuges for salmon as well as some shorter coastal streams that weren't glaciated along the B.C. coast and stuff. Uh, so that these fish repopulated those waters. They became locally adapted to those watersheds. And the more successful in those watersheds that they had repopulated re uh, than they were to any other watershed that they might go into because they adapt so quickly to those environments. How do you feel about fisheries like the Chinook? in New Zealand, where there weren't that many native fish to begin with. Yeah, wherever the English went, the trout went. Yeah, yeah. How do you yeah. feel about that? Do you feel like it's okay if Chinook are put down there, if they're not competing with anything? Well, they are. They're, they're creating a wedge within that ecosystem to support themselves, and it's at something else's expense. I saw a friend of mine that uh, does really beautiful photographs. He had a photograph hanging on the wall that he's trying to sell of uh, New Zealand, and I looked at that, and the plants were not native. The fish 
were not native in the river, and the angler wasn't native either. No. And so I <laughs> right. said, what is this photograph about? <laughs> yeah, you can read a lot uh, between the lines. Uh, yeah. But it's an interesting debate. So where do you draw the line? Because here's my, I'm always trying to look at everything like a compromise. I believe everything in life is a compromise. So if you look at somewhere like New Zealand, the trout are obviously introduced. Mm -hmm. The salmon are introduced. Everything yeah. is introduced. I'm yeah. not going to go into the foliage and the plants yeah. right now, but yeah. the fish are introduced. Yeah. That, in turn, brings out a lot of people, and it makes them passionate about the environment. So yeah. it's kind of a trade-off. Yeah. Whereas if, say, the only native species there were some sort of a small fish and mm -hmm. or the eels, mm -hmm. maybe yeah, obviously yeah, the eels. The eels. Yeah. It wouldn't yeah. have that same yeah. draw. Yeah. So where do you draw the line where <clears throat> you're satisfied with having an introduced well, anything, as long as it's it's starting to educate people and make them passionate about their environment and the great outdoors. Well, usually, usually the introduction is is done with only one goal in mind: utilization and money. Always follow the money. Those those are the motives. Utilization brings money, and they're not looking at the ecosystem impacts. And that's why we've done done it over time. But if you did the footwork first and said, what kind of ecosystem debit are we creating for ourselves with these fish being brought in, then there may be places where you could do it and it wouldn't have a big impact. Maybe it will definitely have some impact. In other places, it would probably be unwise to do it. Yeah. But that's never the way we do it. No. We just bring them in. So where do, what about with, with us here? Because I agree with you. I don't think we should be introducing anything here. Well, we're, we're not native either. That's my question. That, I didn't want to be the one to say it, but you mentioned about your friend's yeah. photograph with the yeah. native, you know, with the yeah. angler who's not native. Yeah. So do you get grief about that, saying, you know, you're all for a native, but here all you white people are out here fishing with fly rods? Yeah, well, the Indians aren't native either. They came over. So where, yeah, so where do you draw See, the line This used to be it? a huge, North America used to be a natural park, you know, with all these huge animals running yeah. around that are in the fossil beds now. And people weren't here. But we are. We, we um, you know, the the aborigines in Australia took them, they, according to um, one writer, 40,000 years to adapt to the ecosystem of Australia so that they weren't constantly degrading it and they were living within it but in the meantime they got uh, caused the extinction or contributed to the extinction of a lot of megafauna because they're easier to hunt and supply is their food rich uh, reward for their effort the same thing the same story has been cast for uh, North America when the people came over from Asia then uh, a lot of the megafauna disappeared now, a lot of people get into this stuff and they're a flash in the pan. They're very committed, they're very eager, and they burn out. Mm -hmm. and people it's easy ask, to do, yeah. And people ask me, why don't you get mad? And I says, well, uh, it isn't, I can't accomplish anything if I get mad. I might go away. You know, I might burn out if I, get, I, was, if I was mad all the time. I appreciate these animals and I love, I love the job. But the thing is, I may not succeed. No, I passed, I got through my, my uh, effort, 1978, it goes back a ways, I got the first wild fish policy passed in uh, Oregon, and it may have been the first one in the whole United States. As Likitowicz told me, who was, you know, was assistant chief of fisheries, I think, at the time, when I got that passed, he says, well, it was stillborn, because the agency's conceptual framework about fish management didn't include wild fish or their habitat. So the, the policy itself, even though it was passed by the commission, it was from an outside source, Billy Bakke, you know, who wanted to protect wild fish, and the commission agreed, and they set this policy together. We They hired uh, geneticists at Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife that they put very specific language in there how to maintain genetic uh, diversity in your fish populations. But it was stillborn. It's not really an active policy. So everything I've worked on is like this biologist in Idaho that I know, that I had met in a meeting some time ago. He says, not a salmon run that I've worked on has survived. And that's a hell of a legacy. Doesn't it make you tired? But I think of the, I think of the same thing with the environmental changes that go on, the intransigence of the political structure and our own culture, how it treats nature. And everything has got to be provide a profit, economic benefit. 
that they're we're killing we're killing the land that sustains us. I didn't want to confuse everybody by going into every single battle that's been oh, no. um, discussed or that'd beaten be, be really or fought. Boring. Well, it's not even boring. It's just in the problem is today with social media. There's so many conservation issues in everyone's face that it actually makes them just tired. So I try not to beat people with too many conservation issues if I don't have to. But the hatchery one's been an interesting area of debate for me. We've covered it pretty good in, in previous episodes. Yeah. Well, Is there anything else that you think you we should add? I always ask the question, what's the motive? What is the motive? What is the motive of management? The motive of management is produce a product for the market. It creates license sales, and it's uh, focused on industrial use of, of the fish. Commercial fisheries, recreational fisheries. the The motive for wild fish is resilience and productivity of the animal. And you can't maintain, as far as I'm concerned, because the hatcheries are a failure. You can't maintain a salmon run if you're only reliant upon hatcheries. The hatcheries really, by very definition, have to have abundant wild populations in order to persist, be, to remain productive. Because that's one thing they learned with the, the native uh, broodstock program, is that the survival of the hatchery fish actually increased when they used wild, wild fish. If the survival increases, their contribution to the fishery also increases, probably. So it's all altogether a good thing. But the problem is that they're not as productive in the natural environment, in the river, as the wild fish are. Even in the first generation, they're losing 20% of their fitness. So their reproductively their reproductive success is poor. So you need to constantly be able to borrow from your wild population. But if it's a small population, you end up depleting it for the hatchery program, or you move fish in from some other watershed stock transfer, because you need a source of eggs to keep that going. Going, or you take wild fish from another system and put them in, in the in the in the new river, and you end up causing all kinds of genetic complications. So it doesn't work. The, the Power Council in 1982 said we're going to double the runs. We're going to use hatchery fish. We're going to first use natural production. Natural production is code for spawning hatchery fish. Okay? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then we're wild. And we're going to double the runs. And they give themselves so many years to do this. And they've spent $15 billion on salmon in the Columbia River, and they've never met their goal. And it's all primarily of hatchery operations. And this is taxpayers' money. And it's public money. Yes, public money. So and how's public, that for incentive? The public is funding a program that's causing the destruction of the wild salmon. That's a pretty good summary for me. Yeah. Bill, is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me? I just did. Perfect. But we can go and check out some flies. And I'll show you, have you come across the, uh, the Tammy? Tammy flies? No. You haven't heard of the Tammy flies? Let's go have a look. It's named after Tammy Faye. No, I haven't yeah. seen these. Huh? I haven't seen these yet. Oh, so we got one. Is that uh, Tammy goes to the Oscars? We got one. Tammy and the Nighty. Yeah. <laughs> Who makes up these these names? Is this oh, you? Well, you know. Oh, gosh, you're <laughs> trouble. All right, I'm going to shut this down. Thanks so much, Bill. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thanks for listening. Wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. to go like just full-blown redneck on these fish there's like high-tech cane pole fishing right here from the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters enjoy the best fishing panama city beach has to offer during chasing the sun sundays at 9 30 a.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment